0: Cardiac arrest management used to mean CPR and a trip to the morgue. Now it's maximizing compressions and hypothermia, and they are surviving. Do you know why? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Benjamin Abella from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Abella is Clinical Research Director at the Center for Resuscitation Science in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. His area of research and teaching is cardiac arrest, and at the University of Pennsylvania, he's at the forefront of his field. Today we're discussing cardiac arrest management and survival welcome dr. Abella well thank you so tell us a little bit about yourself not everybody has a uh, primary specialty of cardiac arrest how did you get into this
1: well it's it's a funny thing being a cardiac arrest physician you're right I don't exactly <laughs> have a regular clinic in that respect
0: <laughs> I, I hope not <laughs> right
1: <laughs> so it's resuscitation science is really considered more of a research field than a specialty I guess my clinical specialty is certainly emergency medicine although I'm also boarded in internal medicine I became interested in cardiac arrest as an entity really when I as a resident in internal medicine. Many of your listeners out there remember the days when they were a resident and remember responding to code blues throughout the hospital many times. And they probably remember just how chaotic it was and they probably remember just how many people did not recover from cardiac arrest. That was certainly my experience. And it troubled me. It made me think we can do better and it made me wonder what doing better would entail. And so through finding out more and through finding people who were studying these topics, I got involved in research, and that's sort of how it all began.
0: Now, tell us about being at Penn. Penn has been been hot for cerebral perfusion research for years and resuscitation medicine. What are some of the things that you've been working on at Penn?
1: Well, it's an exciting place to be, and uh, I'll tell you, we have a group here called the Center for Resuscitation Science, of which I'm the clinical research director, and it's really a unique entity. We have a large research enterprise in the world of resuscitation, and we recognize that cardiac arrest requires multiple areas of expertise. So we have nurses, physicians, we have PhD scientists, we have engineers, all working together. And it's really quite an exciting thing. We probably have about 30 or 40 people part of our center. And so we're doing research in a number of areas. One of our areas that we are very involved in is therapeutic hypothermia as a treatment for post-arrest victims. What this means is when someone suffers a cardiac arrest, The notion is that you can cool them down to about 90 degrees Fahrenheit or about 32 degrees Celsius for 24 hours and greatly reduce brain injury and improve survival. So that's sort of one area. The other area, we study how people deliver CPR and new ways to teach CPR, new ways to look at CPR, because we truly believe that CPR is one of the cornerstones to survival from cardiac arrest. And there's certainly been a number of studies showing that the provision of CPR can double or triple survival from what is otherwise a highly mortal condition.
0: Now, going back to BCLS care even, has a chain of survival changed? Is it still access, CPR, defibrillate, and care?
1: So the general rubric of care for cardiac arrest victims has remained the same, namely prompt recognition of a cardiac arrest, the delivery of CPR and defibrillator therapy if a defibrillator is available, and then ACLS care, and this is certainly espoused by the American Heart Association through the chain of survival concept, and so that hasn't changed. What has changed, however, is we're beginning to make real progress with getting therapy to the victim. And I mean the provision of automatic external defibrillators, or AEDs, which everybody now sees in malls and airports and gyms. They're becoming more like fire extinguishers. Namely, they're everywhere. You don't need them very often, but when you need them, you can use them. In addition, organizations are beginning to make inroads towards broader CPR education, and then therapeutic hypothermia is really making a big impact in in many cities that have hospitals that offer it. And so we're beginning for the first time since the development of CPR and defibrillation about 50 years ago, for the first time, we're really beginning to see an uptick in survival.
0: Now, most of our listeners as physicians have heard it's compression, compression, compression in the field. But what about the other factors of compression? What about the depth of compression? Does that impact survival? Well, in fact, chest compressions are a complicated
1: thing. It sounds simple, push on the chest, but there's
0: a number of parameters.
1: One is the compression rate, and that's certainly important. Current teaching is that 100 compressions per minute should be delivered. But depth is also important, and we generally believe pushing hard is the key thing. The American Heart Association teaches 1.5 to 2 inches of depth as a guideline, but with our changing population and increasing levels of obesity, I'm not sure 2 inches is necessarily the right answer. I think the right answer is pushing as hard as one can on the chest at 100 beats per minute. But there are other factors as well. For example, a leaning on the chest, we find a lot of Healthcare providers lean on the chest inadvertently between compressions. It's important to release pressure completely between compressions. And a number of studies, including our research, have shown this to be important for blood flow. So actually, CPR is a little bit more complicated than it seems. But here's the most important thing for listeners to realize. Some CPR and suboptimal CPR is better than no CPR. So by no means should people feel like, wow, this is hard to do. I'm not going to do it.
0: Yeah, I can't do it. It's changed. I haven't read the book.
1: Well, that's right. The most important thing is to have no fear, get the hands on the chest, and start beating on it, because that is the only way to keep people alive until help can arrive.
0: Other things have changed, too, as you go through the sequence. What's the role of administering shocks?
1: Well, the the role of defibrillation, delivering shocks to patients in ventricular fibrillation, is changing. It turns out a number of studies have shown that doing CPR before defibrillation may actually be important in some cases, and I'll try to make this clear. The American Heart Association and other organizations still certainly teach that immediate defibrillation of VF or ventricular fibrillation rhythm is the right thing to do. That being said, if someone has had an unwitnessed arrest, or someone has been down for several minutes with no CPR being delivered, it seems that delivering CPR for a few minutes before attempting to defibrillate may greatly increase the chance of successful defibrillation. So I think practically what this means is, if you can get to somebody right away, you see the collapse, you get those pads on, and you shock them right away, that's, that's ideal. If You run into a room, you have no idea how long they've been down, or if no one's giving CPR, it's probably a good idea to get CPR started for several minutes until you can get the defibrillator hooked up and then try to shock someone.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Benjamin Abella. We're discussing cardiac arrest, survival, and treatment post-arrest. I read some of your material before, and you mentioned the importance of a debriefing after an arrest. Why is that often missing in hospital settings?
1: Well, cardiac arrest is a funny thing for practitioners. It interrupts the normal workflow. You're often doing other things and suddenly summoned to go to a cardiac arrest. And this is the same also, by the way, for paramedics. And what happens is after an arrest event, usually the team disperses. And I think a real opportunity for quality assurance and for learning is lost in this, What we've been doing at our hospital and other hospitals that we work with is encouraging debriefing, where if the team, after an arrest event, whether the patient lives or dies, huddles up and discusses what they did right or wrong, it can be a remarkable opportunity both for closure, but more importantly, for improvement of care for the next time around. And, and this model is certainly understood by those who do, who are in the reserves, who do military training or military exercises. When a military team goes through a stressful combat mission, they will debrief and they will discuss what happened because at that time, everything's vivid in everybody's head and you can really learn how to improve care.
0: Mechanical CPR devices, are they effective? (laughs) So
1: there are several mechanical CPR devices that are currently available on the market. For example, and I should uh, give full disclosure, I've received some consulting fees of a small amount from one of these companies, Zoll. Zoll Corporation makes the Autopulse, which is a mechanical CPR device. Also, Medtronic has licensed a device that is currently also available called Lucas. Both of these devices can be strapped to a patient and can mechanically deliver CPR meaning you don't have to push on the chest. You just hit the on button, and it will compress the patient for you, as it were. These devices are complicated. There are uh, data supporting them, certainly, but there has yet to be published any large clinical trials convincingly showing that they work in all cases. I personally believe these devices are promising and have a lot of potential and may be the way of the future. I just don't think we're quite there yet. I think some settings, however, might... Greatly benefit from them. For example, rural EMS settings or paramedics who have a long delivery time to the hospital, it is just not physically feasible to give manual CPR for 15 or 20 minutes in the back of an ambulance. So, in those settings, I think already these devices may be very helpful. Possibly also in emergency departments. It's not entirely clear, however the role of these devices in the hospital setting. They're a subject of intensive research, and I do suspect they're an idea that's here to stay.
0: Could you touch on for a moment the ethics of resuscitation? Are people surviving because of the advances in science who perhaps shouldn't have, or they do survive the arrest, but They may not make it out of the hospital?
1: That's a very legitimate concern. Certainly, we all worry that we might resuscitate someone who goes on to be neurologically devastated. Certainly, there have been famous cases of this in our recent American history that have received notoriety, and and we certainly want to avoid that, especially if that's not what the family would have wanted. The good news is that with therapeutic hypothermia, for example, we tend to have a bimodal distribution of survivors. People tend to either die or live with a reasonably recovered brain. What hypothermia seems to do is reduce the number of folks who survive but have neurologic devastation, and that's exactly what we would want. Now, the other aspect of this question is, should we even attempt resuscitation on everyone? And I think the answer to that should be no. No. What I mean to say is I think there are certainly some people for whom resuscitation is not going to work, and this is certainly not something that we should be deciding unilaterally, but I think all of us as physicians need to be more aware of the need for living wills for advanced directive discussions with families, for families to understand what resuscitation really means, and for families to understand that still the chance of resuscitation in most cases is low. I think the public is greatly influenced by television, and in TV everybody survives their cardiac arrest events to swelling, exciting music. And so <laughs> so patients think that everybody comes back when, in fact, that's not the case. And so I think careful, frank discussions with families I suspect is the way to go with this and there are probably many patients who, for whom resuscitation really is futile. I think this is also important so that we can focus our energies on those patients who are savable and may have a good recovery. For example, Most people are aware of the untimely death of Tim Russert, a television correspondent last year. He died of sudden cardiac arrest, and he was a very functional, active participant in society. If he had survived with good brain recovery, I think we can all agree that that would have been a a wonderful thing for him and his family. It's people like him that we really want to focus our energies on, folks who are active and reasonably healthy. They may have underlying hypertension or diabetes, What I think we don't want to focus our energies on is folks who are clearly terminal in the last weeks or months of their life who are fragile with medical problems that can go on for pages and pages. These patients, in truth, would they want to go through resuscitation and and would it really help them? And and that's where I think our discussion should reside.
0: Thank you, Dr. Abella, for being our guest today. Well, thank you very much. Our thanks goes to Dr. Benjamin Abella, who's been our guest. We've been discussing cardiac arrest and survival and post-arrest management. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. That's 888-639-6157. And thank you for listening.